Oh, hi. Hey. Good late afternoon. I'm getting a very late start for the podcast today, mainly because I got such an early start this morning. I was up at three fooling around with the blog, but that caused me to need to take a little nap. And I slept right through the part of the day when I would have been podcasting. So here we are, getting into a late start. The What did we talk about today on the blog? Well, I began the blog with some stuff about Kanye West's um, Joe Rogan podcast. And I broke it into two parts because, well, seemed to need a separate place. So this is Kanye West talking about Black History Month. And I'm quoting, well, you know, wish there was a transcript of the whole three hours. That would be great. So if Joe Rogan would like to do transcripts, that'd be cool. But uh, Billboard made a an article with some transcript called 10 Takeaways from Kanye West's Conversation with Joe Rogan. I recommend listening to the whole three-hour thing. I'm enjoying it. I'm still not through to the end, but I also would like to get more transcript. We're, this is Kanye West. We're given Black History Month, and we take that like it's some gift to us. What if we had Remember When I Cheated on You Month? How does that make you feel? So that's, I use that as the post title, and then the longer, trans, the longer quote is in the text of the, blo- of the blog post. So this is Kanye West. Most black people, we don't know where we came from. We think we came from slaves. We don't know our bloodline. We're given Black History Month, and we take that like it's some gift to us. No, it's programming to us. Racism doesn't end until we get to a point where we stop having to put the word black in front of it, because it's like we're putting the rim a little bit lower for ourselves. We shouldn't have to have a special box, a special month. What they show during Black History Month is us getting hosed down, reminding us that we were slaves. What if we had, remember when I cheated on you month? How does that make you feel? It makes you feel depleted and defeated. So he's really basically making the argument that I would put on the right, which is the argument, used to be a left argument, but the argument for colorblindness. Don't single black people out. Don't treat them, don't act like you're giving them a gift of being treated specially because there's something depressing, uh, defeating, about being singled out as different, as special, by, even by people who are trying to look generous toward you, like it's a gift. No, it's programming. What it is is programming, he says. Another thing, he said, this is about uh, um, abortion. He talks a lot about abortion. There were tw- 210,000 deaths due to COVID in America. Everywhere you go, you see someone with a mask on, with the A word, the A word, A culture. I'll say it one time, with abortion culture. There are 1,000 black children aborted a day, daily. We are in genocide. More black children since February than people have died of COVID. And everyone wears a mask. So it's a matter of where are we turning a blind eye to? Now, we wear a mask. Uh, This is me talking now. We wear a mask to protect each other. Well, you wear a mask to protect the other person 
from getting it in case you have it. And I think people also think maybe it will protect them. But if we get everyone to wear a mask, then we're uh, mutually protecting each other. But what would be the equivalent if we thought that the death of a thousand black children a day was a terrible thing? That would be the equivalent of people who were dying of uh, COVID thousand, you know, isn't it about a thousand a day in the United States that are dying of COVID? And there's an equivalent number, if he's right on that statistic, of black children that are aborted a day. So we take this strong action wearing a mask. What could we do about abortion? What would be the equivalent of a mask? Well, every aborted child has a mother who's deciding to abort that child. So there's no way that you can get other people to protect you, you the unborn. You're not really in the debate at all. And the mother is really making the decision on your behalf. And it's just one person. And the protection is in her mind. So there's something, the abortion culture, there's something in the mind of the women who are having these abortions every day. Um, what are you doing to help those women? How are you reaching out to them? Partly Kanye West talks about how men who are young men, he mentions especially men in their 30s, that they just think we're too busy. We don't want, uh, we, we, we're doing things. We're not ready for a child. Of course, the women who, get, who decide to get the abortion are also deciding, I'm not ready for a child. Maybe I never want a child. Maybe I don't want this child. Or maybe I'm just too busy, it's not the right time for me. So the equivalent of a mask would have to be some kind of idea of being much more welcoming, much more focused on children. It would have to be something in your mind. There's no uh, germ out there. There's no virus out there that's contagious, that's jumping around. There's just a culture. You know, you could compare the culture you know, you could say the culture is like a contagion, but that means, but it's not a contagion that has anything to do with masks. You would have to think of what analogously would be a mask. What would we need to do? And the answer would be we'd, we'd need to have much more valuation of babies and of our own sexuality so that we don't end up with pregnancies that are not connected with children. So you know, that that would have to do with changing the culture quite a lot. And Kanye West is contributing to that as much as anybody is, I think. The second post about um, Kanye West's interview, also using the transcript from Billboard, where I tweaked the text of it a little to make it more accurate. They, you know, when transcripts are made from audio where the person is speaking spontaneously, there are a lot of false starts and extra words and overlap. And that's not all captured in the transcript. It could be, but in a standard transcript, you don't try to capture all of that. But there was one thing that he said um, that I tweaked because I like the spontaneous quality of it. He says people were just like, oh, their minds were blown. And in the Billboard transcript, it just says people's minds were blown. So he said, people were just like, oh, their minds were blown. And that was transcribed as people's minds were blown. So some of the style of West's speech is lost in the transcription. I put a little of it back. Anyway, 
Here's where he's talking about running for president. So I'll read you that. Anything I go into, producing, rap, homes, clothing, anything, once I'm given the right information, I apply my taste and I have the best taste on the planet. I put that in the post title and then here it is in context. He's talking about getting the idea to run for president. It was something that God put in my heart back in 2015. A few days before the MTV Awards, it hit me in the shower. When I first thought of it, I just started laughing to myself and all this joy came over my body through my soul. I felt I felt that energy and spirit. Two days later, I accepted the Michael Jackson Video Vanguard Award on the MTV Awards. Instead of performing my array of hit songs, I just gave my perspective on awards shows. It even took heart to say it in that context and people were just like, oh, their minds were blown. I had different friends, different people in the music industry, some tech elites, they took it as a joke. I realize I didn't make it clear what it was there. It is that he's gonna run for president. I'm completely confident that I will figure out how to get America out of debt, that I have the ability, once I see everything, I never make the wrong decision when I'm given all the information. That's my skill set. Anything I go into, producing, rap, homes, clothing, anything, once I'm given the right information, I apply my taste and I have the best taste on the planet. Could you imagine Quincy Jones as president, Walt Disney, Steve Jobs, for America to be as warming and inviting as Disney World? There used to be this dream. People have this dream of coming to America. I know that me as president would be the best thing that would ever happen for American, America's foreign policy. I've traveled more than any president already, and I bring people together. I put rivals on songs together to create masterpieces. I'm definitely 100% winning in 2024. So he's just getting started this year and he's going to run and win in 2024. Remember, that's the way Trump talked. He, even uh, back around 1990, he was saying he was considering running. And if I run, I will win. And then he did. So back to what I said about that Kanye West quote, I said, I'm very interested in this concept that it all comes down to taste, that there are some taste geniuses in the world and you could put them in charge of maybe anything and with experts to give them all the information, they can make the right things happen. They can figure it all out in a way that specialists in that field cannot. What if choosing a president, we the humble voters thought, who has the best taste? Have you ever even passingly looked at the array of candidates at any point in the process and considered the question in terms of taste? Not your taste, not it's reflective of good taste to vote for Obama, not it's in bad taste to vote for Donald Trump. Yeesh, I'd look awful voting for Trump, but I don't have all the information and the information is always changing. So I want the person who, given all the information, will make the best choice and that must be the person with the best taste. West's idea is something like Trump's. He's taken his initial success and gone on to other fields of enterprise using his name recognition as a brand and running on immense confidence in his raw intuition. There's no humility, no fear of failure. Now, I didn't put this on the 
blog post, but I would say, with respect to Kanye West, he has been diagnosed as having bipolar disease, uh, bipolar disorder. So he, when he's manic, he can come up with all of these ideas and energy and mix things together, and that seems very valuable. But he also has his depression phase. Uh, president needs to be available to deal with everything at any point, at any time over the course of the day, every single day. Um, an artist can be up and then stay back, do nothing. You can go on and off. You can choose. So one of the things you have choice about, one of the choices you make is when to work, when to be up, when to follow your energy and your creative spurts. That's nothing like what a president needs to do. He needs to be available all the time. And so I actually think a less dynamically creative person ought to be president. Um, people who describe Trump describe him as flitting from thing to thing, as not having an attention span, and he jumps all over the place. Now, that may be good if you like what he's doing. Maybe it'll take us a long time to get the perspective on what he did and to have an opinion about that. But he doesn't seem to have a low energy period. I don't know how he does that. Some people suggest he's on Adderall or something like that. But uh, Kanye West is in a mood swing cycle. So he's not high energy all the time. He's high energy when he's high energy. And he chose when to do this podcast. He spoke very interestingly and creatively and dynamically for three hours, more than three hours. But that's because he was choosing the time to come. I think he had canceled the interview at an earlier point. You know, he needs to pick the time. And I think when he's down, it's really a bad problem. And I don't know why he would offer himself as capable of doing the job other than that when he's manic, he has this endless confidence in himself. Trump has a lot of confidence too. How much confidence do you really want? I don't, you know, I don't feel confident myself, so I don't really know how that feels to just think I just hit all the right decisions of all the people in the world. I'm the best one at picking. You lay out the choices in front of me and then the best thing in the world is to have me informed of the, what the choice is and let me pick. I'll pick things. I can always do that. I can be best. I would never think that of myself. I would, uh, but I, but we do have to rely on somebody. Should the somebody be somebody with a little more humility, a little bit more restraint or an awareness that mistakes can be made? Or do you want someone that's always up and thinking this is going to work? make America great again, that kind of an idea. By the way, we, uh, we put a, an American flag on the house and we have this idea of the, we're in a neighborhood where a lot of people have Biden signs and we wondered whether there were houses that had uh, American flags and Biden signs or was there some kind of an idea that uh, a, an American flag looks like a Trump sign. It's like the equivalent of a Trump sign. Is it the case that the Democratic Party has disaggregated itself from simple patriotism as represented by the flag, and has that been ceded to the, um, to the Republicans? I don't know if it's true. We did see one Biden-Harris sign that had two little flags attached to it. So 
I would say that the American flag is still used by both parties, but some people think that the Democrats have given up on the simple, old-school American patriotism. I remember back in the circa 1970s, it was a hippie thing to use the American flag, you know, to sew an American flag onto the back of your denim jacket or to have a big American flag hanging on your dorm wall. Um, that was considered a kind of, well, there, there was a, a love for the country in a sense of wanting to save the country, getting out of the war, doing different things, but it was associated with the flag. The, the feeling was seen in the flag, even by people who were, were quite uh, rebellious against the existing administration. Anyway, what about China? I see that millennials in China look askance at American democracy or so we're told in Who Needs Democracy? China's 400 million millennials prefer iPhones. And this is in the London Times. And isn't it interesting that there are 400 million millennials in China? That's more than the entire population of the United States. They have more millennials than we have people. But what are the millennials like? Are they people who are hoping to get to the point of democracy? Or do they look over at us and think, who needs that? That's not an improvement. We want the good life with material goods and, and economic wealth. We want our individual lives. We don't want to be all involved in politics. I'm telling you, I sort of feel like that myself. I mean, I want a good government. I don't want an abusive government, but I'm not convinced that uh, this being absorbed in politics, every not just every four years, but for the entire four years, who will be the next president to fight over it is just idiotic in my opinion. And then we ended up with such a bad choice. It's just the height of stupidity. So I think about people in other countries, people in China, millennials in China, looking at us and thinking, what's the point of all of that? You work so hard to get to that point and it'll be a big letdown. Let's just um, allow the government to have its power and uh, it will be required to provide us with a good life. So there's only one party, and maybe that'll work out well for us. Um, for, first in this London Times article is a quote from K.U. Jin, J-I-N, a professor at the London School of Economics and consultant to Richemont, the world's second biggest luxury goods company. Let's see what side he's on, or she. Uh, and the quote is, these millennials represent a radical change from previous generations. They are confident, they're prosperous, they're privileged, and most importantly, they're incredibly proud of their nation and its economic prospects. Despite caveats about measuring public opinion, Jin said, there has been a radical shift even in the last few years. The new generation does not believe that democracy is suitable for China. It does not even believe that a multi-party system might be better for China than what it currently has. The fractious U.S. election campaign is a source of fascination, but also of reassurance in a country where there are no democratic complications. And now there's a quote from Andy Mock, M-O-K, a Beijing-based American business analyst. And he says, many Chinese watched the U.S. presidential election with a sense of astonishment and relief, astonishment that so much money and political energy is spent, and relief 
that they do not live under a system of such political dysfunction that erupts in this sad and wasteful spectacle every four years. And Yun Sun, S-U-N, director of the China program at the Stimson Center think tank in Washington, said, I think the Chinese are often confused about how chaotic and indecent American politics could be. To a large extent, it signifies the undesirability of the Western democratic system to the Chinese and the genuine conviction that in China, and the genuine conviction in China that the U.S. system is flawed in a country where there is no free media or free flow of information, independent public opinion is a myth, if not an illusion, since the information about U.S. elections and U.S.-China relations is processed and provided by the state and the Chinese public, including the youth, do not have an alternative source of information. Their views have indeed become more pro-Beijing, patriotic, and hawkish. That's something to think about. And notice he was that, that one commentator was saying every four years all of this uh, political stuff comes up in America. But as I was saying before, it's not every four years. It's continuous. We're about to get to the end of a presidential election. But when will the 2024 election begin? Well, I already mentioned Kanye West saying he was going to win in 2024. People are already talking about 2024. And I think no sooner will there be a, an inauguration than candidates will start trying to uh, get their position established. I think the whole thing begins again uh, in, in 2021. We'll, we'll already be, we're, and we're already talking about 2024. So it, it never stops. It never backs off. And I really think if uh, Trump doesn't win, if Trump wins, the fight will immediately begin, even before the second inauguration. And I think if Trump loses, well, I expect him to take his movement into a media enterprise and really build up something big. So, uh, as once he's not president, he'll become the post-president Donald Trump. What will that be? I mean, I think that will be a big media presence of a sort that, well, we'll find out. Then I put up a quote that was just something that I found really arcane, obscure, and weird in the New York Review of Books, and I put up the post without commentary I, you know, I don't put up things just because I agree with them. I put them up because I think this would be something interesting to talk about. This is a good text. You know, it's a reading. I'm giving you a reading. Try to figure it out. Okay, now it has a title that attracted my attention. The Pleasures of Authoritarianism. And this is by someone named Jacqueline Rose. And it's just a quote from the middle of the article. You can go read the whole article if you want to know more about it. We are witnessing a new sexualization of politics. We are witnessing a new sexualization of politics, something quite other from the repressive desublimation, the term made famous by Herbert Marcuse in the 1960s to describe the way an advanced industrial culture uses a mix of technology and partially satiated consumer desires to neutralize any potential working class 
revolt. We might call it promiscuity in its psychotic mode. Okay, now this is already hard to understand, and it kind of might remind you of what we were just talking about with respect to China, that in a, that um, an advanced industrial culture might use a mix of technology and partially satiated consumer desires to neutralize any working class revolt. Well, isn't that what China is doing? Neutralizing a revolution of a sort that would get to democracy or any kind of multi-party system by giving them consumer goods, right? Repressive desublimation. And this is a term made famous by Herbert Marcuse, but uh, is it famous enough that you've heard of it? Do you know about repressive desublimation? And then here, this topic that Rose, the New York Review of Books author, is writing about, She's saying that something that's new in politics now is quite other from what Marcuse was talking about, this repressive desublimation. You know, why bring it up at all if the thing you're talking about is something different other than that it's all about sex? And I was thinking about how in 1970, when I was in college, I saw uh, some of the, my my uh, fellow students, some women students, extremely excited about the book Sexual Politics by Kate Millett. And I didn't know anything about the book yet, but boy, they were treating it like a, a worship object. This was great. And I had a sort of aloof attitude toward it because I imagined it was about a topic which, in fact, it was not about. I imagined that it was about something about how we do politics actually has some sexual theory to what's really going on like when we're excited about this or that political thing, that it has a titillation or some sexual desire sublimated into it. Um, and I, I felt like, oh, bullshit, I don't need that. I was tired of that sort of thing. I thought that was old. But in fact, it wasn't about how politics is really sexual. It was about how sex is really political, the idea that the personal is political, the feminist idea. So that was what was actually in Kate Millett's book, which I ended up buying and being very interested in at the time. But my first look at the title, Sexual Politics, made me think it was something like this uh, repressive desublimation idea. Something, well, let's see. But, but, but the thing that rose in the New York, the, the Jacqueline Rose, the writer in the New York Review of Books, the thing that she's talking about is other from repressive desublimation. We might, uh, so it, what is to describe the way, okay, we might call it promiscuity in its psychotic mode. Now, I guess that's referring back to the thing that the thing she's talking about is quite other from. See how arcane it is? See how involuted and weird it is? Well, let's read on in this quote. Or we might get lost forever in this quote. This quote is quicksand and we're sinking fast. So let me, let me move on to the next sentence. Brazenly, it, it. We are witnessing a new sexualization of politics. So that's the it. We are witnessing a new sexualization of politics. We might call it promiscuity in its psychotic mode. Brazenly, it displays itself without apology to a world excited and repelled 
in equal measure by unconscious forces, lust, greed, hatred, and rage, that no one readily admits to, and that are being harnessed on behalf of everyone. Are you following this? So there is a new sexualization of politics that is being displayed uh, to a world excited and repelled in equal measure for, by unconscious forces. So there's the world, and then there's the new sexualization that's displaying itself to the world. Seems like an exhibitionist. So the world is excited and repelled by lust, greed, hatred, and rage that no one readily admits to. Okay, so there's the world with those unconscious forces that aren't being admitted. And then there's the brazen sexualization of politics coming at it. I'm trying to picture this concretely because just in, in the form of these plain words, it just seems like a mess. But I guess if I break it down, I feel like a preacher reading the, the uh, gospel, doing a sermon based on the gospel, which is something Kanye West was talking about, by the way. He was saying that he liked the preachers who had a Bible reading and then the entire sermon was very closely attached to that text, line by line, sentence by sentence, word by word, and really talking about it. So I'm drawn to do that with a difficult text too, except I'm giving you this crazy text, The Pleasures of Authoritarianism from the New York Review of Books. Maybe I should pick texts that I, I feel more positively toward as opposed to thinking, this is complicated and weird and what the hell's going on here? Let me try to figure it out. Okay, to continue. I only have a couple more sentences, three or four more sentences. No point, therefore, asking how bad it can get, how far they are willing to go, or how on earth they can get away with it. Going too far is the point. The transgression is the draw and the appeal. Transgression always carries a sexual tremor, even when it is not manifestly about sex. So she's talking about politics. Politics are not manifestly about sex, but they're somehow giving us an, an, uh, an orgasm. Isn't that what a sexual tremor is? The transgression is the draw and the appeal. Transgression always carries a sexual tremor. Well, that, that can't be an orgasm, or every transgression would give you an orgasm. That doesn't make any sense. I really don't know what she's talking about. Let's just read the last sentence and then move on because uh, it's, it's just some crazy, sexy politics stuff that isn't sexy at all, really. It's just um, kind of a headache. Here's the last sentence. It's a truism of psychoanalysis that the law always nurtures the possibility, indeed the likelihood, of its own demise because the superego the agent of the law inside the head is too tyrannical to be obeyed with any consistency. Okay, so she's talking about psychoanalysis and the law. It's a truism of psychoanalysis that the law nurtures the likelihood of its own demise. If you have law in your head, that's the superego 
right? So she's talking about the superego. That's Freudian terminology. The superego in your head is the agent of the law, and um, it's too tyrannical. So you're always going to rebel against it. It is too tyrannical. Oh, you're going to, um, you can't always uh, follow it. You can't always follow the superego. It's too tyrannical to be obeyed with any consistency. And then that's why I guess there's rebellion is this transgression that's always calling out to you. And it, uh, hmm. But somehow that is authoritarianism. So it more seems like the revolutionary forces are promising the sexual qualities. But she's saying the pleasures of authoritarianism. I don't really know what she's talking about, but I'm willing to think that the sexual urges and desires and feelings within the human organism are excited by and activated within the things that we do that aren't sexual at all, like politics. And let's move on. Man, maybe I shouldn't have put that up. I wonder what people are saying about it in the in the comments, are they saying, Altas, what the, why did you put this up? Why did you tell me to, why did you assign this? You know, when you're a teacher, you assign readings. And then uh, maybe you read them again very carefully before class and you think, oh, I wish I hadn't assigned this. But you think, well, all of these people that you assigned it to are reading it and thinking, well, the teacher assigned it. It must be meaningful. I've got to try to figure out what this means. Or else they say, I have no idea what this means. I'll go to class and leave it to Althaus to explain what the hell this means um, and, you, and let her justify why she made me read this. And then in class, we'll plod through the text. Um, let's see what anyone, did anyone say anything in the comments that made some sense of this? I true Russell said I truly thought the article would be about cancel culture. I wonder why. Uh, and Tommy Duncan said, as a white STEM guy, I'm lost trying to read this and find any meaning. Meaning. And Kassar said pseudo intellectual blather or parody. And Rahaj said so not a rejection of authoritarianism, but a distaste for the people doing it. Uh, I guess I should read more of this. Well, we'll leave that for the seminar. We'll just talk that through for two hours, but we've got to move on in the podcast. Oh, next is Cher singing Happiness is a Thing Called Joe. There was this... <laughs> 2020 I Will Vote concert last night and Cher was one of the celebrities and she sang a version of the song Happiness is Just a Thing Called Joe in which the words, new words, using the Joe of course, but new words were put in and she sang, right now our country's gloomy, fear is in the air, but when Joe's president, hope is everywhere. Troubles fly away and life will easy flow. Joe will keep us, us safe. That's all we need to know. Well, she's really lulling us. You know, I think the character in the movie that the song is from was also lulled into thinking Joe was good when he wasn't. But uh, 
I said Cher weighs in, and that's all you need to know, using the line from the song. Obviously, Cher being for Joe Biden is not all you need to know. I'm not saying that. I'm making fun of the cheesy rewrite of the lyrics to the song Happiness is a Thing Called Joe. As New York Magazine explains, Happiness is a Thing Called Joe is an old song, Harold and Arlen Yip Harburg song from the 1943 film musical Cabin in the Sky. Here's its original context, question whether there's, a, whether there's a problem of racial appropriation with the devastatingly sweet Ethel Waters. And you'll have to go to the blog. I got it embedded. You can see uh, Ethel Waters being just uh, very, very sweet and in love with Joe. Not that Joe's a good guy, but her idea of him is just the definition of happiness. She's wrong, by the way, except to the extent that love is really everything, and her love is happiness. From the original lyrics, it seems like happiness is just a thing called Joe. He's got a smile that makes the lilacs want to grow. He's got a way that makes the angels heave a sigh when they see little Joe is passing by. And then I added uh, the all-time greatest political rewrite of a song was Frank Sinatra's High Hopes for JFK. And the original version was also Sinatra. There was a movie called Hole in the Head, and Sinatra is singing along with his son, played by the actor Eddie Hodges, and they sing about uh, just crazy hopes that you could... In the song, it's about uh, once there was a little old ant thought he'd move a rubber tree plant. Anyone knows an ant can't move a rubber tree plant, but he had high hopes. So it's about ridiculous hopes. The ant actually can't move the, uh, the rubber tree plant, but hope is great, the idea of hope. So when it's rewritten and sung, also by Sinatra, for Kennedy, he's saying, uh, you know, Kennedy can do these things. You, when you're saying this man should be president, you're not saying he's got high hopes and it's just a ridiculous project that he has in mind, like an ant moving a plant. Uh, so it's a funny choice of song because it suggests he's promising things he can't possibly do. But the way the word is, the song is rewritten, there are things, they, they seem to be things that a president could do. Anyway, and it was Sinatra and he was singing his own song. Here it's Cher going back to a song from 1943, a song about poor black people. A beautiful song, same uh, songwriters as in the movie um, The Wizard of Oz. So happiness is a thing called Joe, written by the same songwriting team as Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful songwriting team. H Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg were both Jewish, but they were writing these songs for black people, and some of it is actually written in a black dialect, dialect like Jess, a thing called Joe, is, is the way it's sung. And even though it's clear that Ethel Waters has perfect diction, she applies that diction to the written dialect of black people in that song. So, But it was back in 1943. I've never seen that movie. Maybe, maybe it's quite charming, but obviously very old-fashioned. And um, uh, one can only imagine what it meant to Americans who watched it in 1943 in the middle of uh, World War II. But uh, Cher is very cornily singing uh, happiness. I imagine, I mean, I think there's something wrong with thinking the, that a person who is president could be 
the very meaning of our happiness. I, I think that that is sort of fascistic. It's the cult of personality. I don't know why you want that in your president. I don't want a president who's purporting to be um, the meaning of my happiness. But I think to some extent, Obama kind of presented himself like that. I used, in my Obama posts, I, I always had a tag called Obama the mood elevator. It was as if Obama was a drug that was supposed to make us feel good. And um, that's the way he was often presented. I probably have a hundred examples of things I picked up on one day or another that deserved the tag, Obama the mood elevator. But I don't think Joe Biden is an equivalent thing. Actually, I think one of the best arguments for Joe Biden would be that he's not purporting to be our everything. He's not the meaning of life. He'll just be a placekeeper. He'll just be there in that position being modestly competent, hopefully. And that's the hope. We hope he'll be modestly confident. Oh, did you see the, I didn't put this on the blog because I didn't see it until after I stopped my morning blogging. But did you see that uh, Biden started to talk about how it will be bad for the next four years if Trump is president? He couldn't think of Trump's name. He referred to him as George. He said George twice. So, you know, he must have been thinking about George Bush. He just forgot who was president. Trump is such a distinctive president. It's absurd not to be able to remember him or to blend him together with George Bush. In fact, it's hard to even remember George Bush, Trump, and then before him, Obama, were such distinctive characters. Yeah, I think it's uh, we're, we're about to have a non-distinctive character if we get Joe Biden. But uh, maybe Joe Biden won't win. I mean, I find it hard to believe he won't win. By the way, the election is just a week away. Uh, as you know, I, I'm not voting, and I just hope the outcome is super clear and we don't have to fight about it. I don't want to fight about it. I want a clear outcome. And may the man with the most votes win, or the man with the most electoral votes win, because this is America. We do it with electoral votes. We have a we're the United States, not just a big collection of people. Speaking of foreign countries, and this is the last post of the day so far, last post that I'll be talking about in the podcast. And uh, this time around, Kazakhstan rolls with the Borat satire and makes tourism ads with the catchphrase, very nice. The New York Times reports, quote, Dennis Keene, an American who lives in Kazakhstan hosts a travel show on a state television channel. I'm kind of like the American Borat, right? Like he's like a guy from America that goes to Kazakhstan and is out of place in, in the country that he's traveling to. So it's like the reverse, he says. When Mr. Keene learned about the Borat sequel, sequel, he thought Kazakhstan should embrace the Borat character's catchphrase and turn it into the country's tourism slogan. Kazakhstan, very nice. Two weeks ago, Mr. Keene and a friend, Yermak Udomisov, who helps foreign film countries arrange shoots in Kazakhstan, pitched the Board of Tourism. And they got these four ads made, and you can um, you can see all four ads in an embedded video on the blog. The government of Kazakhstan banned the first Borat film and threatened to sue Sasha Baron Cohen, the creator of the movie character. But now Udomasov says it's a newer generation. They've got Twitter, they've got Instagram, they've got Reddit. They know English. They know memes. They get it. 
They're inside the media world. We're looking at the same comedians, the same Kimmel show. Kazakhstan is globalized. So think of that. This is me now. Think of that, the, the backward country that's shown in the Borat films. No, you have to think again. They've got the internet. They speak English. They're on Twitter, at least the millennial group. So this kind of connects with the other post about the Chinese millennials. They're up to speed. They know what's what. It's memes. It's internet. It's speaking English. It's getting the joke, even when the joke is on them. Oh, and there's one more post. I almost forgot it. It's from an article by Yasha Monk, M-O-U-N-K, in an article in The Atlantic called Trump is the best candidate for the illiberal left. If you hate wokeness, you should vote for Joe Biden. Are you buying this theory? Let's say you're worried that the left is taking over, it will have too much sway, and your main concern is to push back the left. Should you vote? Let's say that is your absolutely decisive point. I don't want the left to make headway in America. As Trump says, America will never be a socialist country. Let's say you really want the left not not to get a foothold, not to get further than it already has. And, And on that decision alone, you're going for Biden or you're going for Donald Trump. Yasha Monk is saying you should vote for Joe Biden in that case. And this is a little quote from his Atlantic article. But fears of a Biden presidency leading to a woke takeover misunderstand the way public opinion moves in America. Because Trump's ample failings have given the most misguided claims of the far left a superficial veneer of plausibility, Trump himself has been the far left's biggest ally. And if the Biden administration does overreach on key cultural issues, that will likely set the stage for a course correction, a cascade back to moderation. If you want to combat illiberalism, casting a vote for Donald Trump is the worst possible thing you can do. So this requires us to understand the way, this is me speaking again, I'm not quoting Yasha Monk anymore. Uh, How does public opinion move in America? That's the question. And if you're concerned about some future movement toward the left and you think I should be for Trump because he's against the left, Monk's argument is no, you should be for Biden because he's moderate and in the middle. And if it turns out, and then the check on that is if Biden, the Biden administration does get into power and then lean left, move left, overreach toward the left, then that will cause whoever is seeking power on the right to get, you know, to to get power. There'll be a course correction, a cascade back to moderation. So if you think in those terms and you're thinking several moves ahead and the main thing you don't want is wokeness, he's saying wokeness, basically the power of the left, then that's a reason to pick uh, the relatively moderate Joe Biden. I mean, obviously some people are concerned that Joe Biden just isn't strong enough to stave off the left and he'll somehow just be played by them or he'll soon be out of the way and 
um, Kamala Harris will come into power and that she is, according to one study, the most uh, liberal member of the Senate. So you have the left just waiting to pop into place if Joe uh, resigns or uh, becomes too uh, physically unable to work. He may just step down and then we have Kamala. So what is the security of being for Biden? Well, you know, I think it's quite possible that Kamala Harris, if she came into the presidency, that she would end up being moderate too, and that her seeming liberality is because she represents California and maybe some other reasons that won't apply if she is president. But boy, you know, we're really making this decision in the, in the dark, aren't we? Very, uh, very dismal, very dismal. But if you're thinking, I'll do something that doesn't make all that much sense because this other thing is down the road, like we, the individual voters, are playing a chess game. That all seems very insecure, and I can understand why the Chinese millennials think the way they do.